This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 231, Athens, part two. I'm Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for listening, sharing, subscribing, and coming back. Philip Martin serves as preacher and shepherd for the East Side Church of Christ in Sharpsburg, Georgia. Brent Moody preaches for the Decker Prairie Church of Christ in the suburban Houston area. They're back with more conversation on the city of Athens. In the second part of our conversation, we discuss how centuries of tradition can be outclassed by good old-fashioned raw ability, both in the discus and in the church. I picked up a short book entitled The Olympian Games in Athens, 1896, expecting it to be a celebration of all things Greek. But as far as the actual competition went, it was far more a celebration of all things American. The United States absolutely dominated the games in virtually every category, simply because the Americans were better trained, better equipped, better coached, bigger, stronger, faster. Here's an example. One event the Greeks thought surely they would dominate was the discus. It is the quintessential Greek sport. The gold medal went to a Princeton college student who literally had never seen a discus until the games. His form was horrible. He was an embarrassment to all who watched, but his raw athletic ability was enough to overcome a 2,000 years of tradition. Do you think our legacy of commitment to Jesus can become an impediment to success? And how can multi-generational Christians like me keep neophytes from showing us up? Well, you know, as always, Hal has the two-part question. Um, as always. As always. Uh, and I want to say the answer is Yes. Um, legacy and a rootedness in a temporal past absolutely can be an impediment to success. That doesn't mean that understanding the past is no of, of no value because every generation changes what they do within the community they are part of when they worship. The question has to be then asked, why did they change? What caused the change? Because once you understand that, the change makes absolute sense because I have a reason for what inputted into their lives that caused the change. And I'm sure for the next 30 years, people will be analyzing 2019 to 2022 and figuring out or trying to at least, hey, why did all these things change? I think the answer to that is pretty, pretty easy. But the fix, like many things, isn't. Uh, it's complicated and it requires hard work. Um, and it is millennial in scope. First century, 21st century, the same conflicts and, and problems will arise and the solutions will still end up with allowing realms of personal judgment to not impede us from being more effective as individual disciples, which may translate into all the other metrics we use to determine spiritual um, impact. You know, you, you think about it this way for the last, I don't know how many years people have been opining that gospel meetings are not effective or they're dead or nobody does them anymore. And in the last seven years, I saw like a little spark of that reappear again. But in the last three years, I'd say that's probably true for all kinds of reasons, not limited to the social dynamic of COVID. Um, there were other factors that kind of precipitated this change. 
but I'm pretty confident that you could probably come up with good stats that will show that what we call a gospel meeting does not happen at the rate that it did five years ago on a per congregation basis. Now, the at-the-ask question, is that good or bad? Well, that's a separate question. Because why? Like, why aren't we doing that? Um, is it because we found a new shiny object to put in its place? Oh, the weekend meetings, the, the rallies, the lectureships, that's the new hit. And those will help us. Or do we come back and say, hey, our goal was to accomplish X, but this, this stopped accomplishing it 30 years ago because nobody does that anymore. Nobody makes a weekly attendance every night of the week a high priority in their community anymore. And we want to make sure we're effective. So if our goal is to reach the lost, as an example, as a, as a goal, and we used to be able to be effective with that in a gospel meeting, but it doesn't work anymore, then we rebrand it and say, well, now it's for the church. Well, then the church stops showing up and we rebrand it and we do something else with it. And we say, man, it was so good back in the day. What was it? I don't know. I wasn't there. But I do know our goal has changed. So our method has changed. And if the gospel is being preached, souls are being reached and they're being transformed, then that was the goal. And let's, let's, let's lead into that more. Yeah, usually it's the things that make us comfortable. And I think that's the that's what people get upset about, too. You know, they're comfortable with the gospel meetings, right? So when when the elders decide, well, let's do something a little different. Well, now people get upset because that's what we've always done. Yeah, like you said, to your point, I mean, the goal, I've sat in a meeting with elders. And I mean, this was this is great. Like, what's our point? Like, what's our purpose? And how can we accomplish this more fully? And it could be you know, in our day and age that actually producing a series of social media videos actually accomplishes that goal much more fully than a gospel meeting. Now, of course, they're not mutually exclusive and, you know, you could do both of those things, but it's just the point of, you know, have we actually tapped into other things to accomplish this goal or do we just keep doing that, that same thing? And and that's what we do. And your second question, how, you know, how do we keep the neophytes from showing us up? My thought is bring it, like show us up. I'm, we should be humble enough to allow those newcomers to come in and say, that doesn't seem like that's what scripture says, or maybe we could do this more accurately some other way. And, you know, are we committed to Jesus or are we committed to the way our church does it? And I think Philip was talking about that a little bit as well with what he was saying, you know, what are we actually committed to? And, that is such an important thing to teach our kids. And when we have these things that happen within our church family, people disagree about, you know, whatever the issue is of the day. I think those are opportunities to talk to our kids about, you know, what is the actual commitment here? Is this a matter of doctrine of what God has told us? Are these opinions? How should we feel about it? What is our true commitment? And a lot of times it is the newer people who bring those things up and they ask questions, you know, why is it we do this or we don't do this? And I I think that's really important to allow that to happen and not just revert to this. Well, there's nothing new under the sun sort of thinking, um, you know, a misuse of Ecclesiastes to back up never changing anything or never challenging anything, because that's not really what the wise man saying in Ecclesiastes. But it's one of those kind of proof texts that sometimes get used 
to try to keep anything from changing around us because we don't like change. We're so right. worried about about that. And so that that new person, they bring change. And that's scary um, to a lot of people. And and probably part of our job as preachers and um, part of you know our shepherd's job as leaders is to try to help through some of that and help guide people to realize it's okay to think through some of these things. And if we do things a little bit differently, as long as we're in accordance with scripture, there's nothing wrong with that too. And just developing that mindset where not every different thing is wrong and bad and evil. You know, we've kind of got to get out of that. Paul actually deals with that so much in his writing. I mean, the book of Romans is all about this idea of Jew and Gentile and them having to figure all this out and understanding what is actually word of God and what is actually culture. And I think it would do us really well if we would understand the book of Romans for what I actually think it's about, rather than kind of the Calvinistic background that many have accepted and I think is incorrect. If we would actually appreciate what Paul's really doing, it'd probably help us with a lot of this stuff, you know, of working through what matters and what doesn't matter and how can we unite despite some of our cultural differences or our backgrounds and all those sorts of things. Because that's usually what's coming into play, I think, um, as we navigate a lot of these things. Here's a thought exercise for everybody. Um, And it's right in the same multi-generational challenge. Have you ever heard anyone pull from like the good house magazines and some of the stuff from the fifties and sixties, even that ascribe to women that one of the most beneficial things they can do for their marriage is to make sure that when they get their husband comes home, that their makeup is done, that the meal is hot and ready and that they are, the whole house is perfect and quiet. I, I think all of us have probably seen somebody take that from the mythos of the nuclear family, which doesn't actually exist, but then come say this is the perfect illustration of the role of a woman in a home. But here's the problem with that. In context of the Bible text, what does Paul say about the specific activity of presenting yourself as a woman with golden jewelry and braided hair And like, what does he say about what should actually be taking place there? He actually literally says, don't do that. Now we pull that text out and say, well, that's about modesty. But what's the context that Paul is working in when he makes this comment about the spouse's behavior in this area? The context is, if you wish to win your unbelieving husband, Don't do these things. Instead, show them your heart. Show them your compassion, your character, and the hidden person of your heart. So we've taken 50s mythology and told women, a whole generation of them, that this is the height of womanhood. And Paul said in context in the text, this is the mutation of womanhood. And so that's like a relevant message to our current culture who struggles to figure out what is the identity of a woman in today's culture? Because they're ready and willing to toss aside the 50s myth. But we've got to be listening well to give them a solution to what what should fit in that space. Mm -hmm. I think a practical aside from that. Uh, we're ranging way off of Acts 17 here, but that's okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, what you're, to your point, I mean, in the fifties, how many people were homeschooling, you know, how many people, so like that's, we've seen that in our home, you know, with us comparing, you know, raising our children to how we were raised and you can, it's like, man, like 
why are we struggling to keep the house clean? And why are we struggling to keep groceries in the house? And why, you know why? Because our four children are home all the time, every day. They never leave. It's just a, you know, so as culture changes and things shift, it's just not the same. I mean, when I was a kid, we all left every day for six hours or whatever it was. And that gave my mom time to clean and to go get groceries and to prepare and, you know, um, yeah, it, the kids just are always here, you know, and so you never have that opportunity. And, and we've figured out ways to, to go do those as they've gotten older. You know, we get away and go to lunch together and there's stuff that we do, but um, that's hard. You know, I, I think as a as a husband, as a man, especially with our wives and the way they sometimes see those things. And this is just our example since we homeschool. But I, part of my job is say, hey, things are different, you know, like just because 40 years ago, this is what happened you're schooling four children right now and you're doing it every day. And that's a very different world than what was going on years and years ago. Well, it's, it's easy to lose sight of what we're actually trying to do, what, what we're actually trying to become, you know, are you trying to be a great discus thrower or are you trying to be a great athlete? <laughs> you know, th- there's a reason why nobody but Greek people threw the discus for 2000 years. This is a, a, a really silly kind of thing. The reason that it was done is because it's a demonstration of athletic prowess, right? Are you trying to be a great performer? Or are you trying to be a great athlete? And, and people who were great athletes figured out a way to do it. They found their way there. And ultimately, they did it better than the people who were performing. And I think that's the way it works in the church sometimes. We get really focused on performing. We make sure that we have the right sign outside. We make sure that our schedule is proper. We make sure that we we check all the boxes and we don't get the church written up on the on the websites or magazines or whatever. And then somebody comes in off the street and they just love Jesus. And they're concerned about serving Jesus. And they put their shoulder to the wheel and they get it done because they're trying to get it done. They're trying to do the best they possibly can at what we're actually trying to do, what the goal should be rather than just, you know, checking boxes or whatever. I think having a new perspective on an old tradition can help us see what we were supposed to have been doing the entire time. And maybe we lost sight of it. There's a powerful thing that comes from a a quote that has re-risen into pop culture from Walt Whitman. Um, Don't be judgmental, be curious. Um, And I think there's some value in when you have someone who is new in their development, they're going to encounter your behaviors with fresh eyes. And if they go, hey, why are you doing that? That doesn't make sense to me. Can you explain it to me in a way that really resonates with what I understand to be going on? You can go to them and go, okay, let's talk about it. Or you can go, that's a dumb question. Why would you even ask that question? This is, this is the right way to do things. This is the approved methodology. One of them will build you a relationship that will endure through suffering and the other one will end it. There's a point where you go, Hey, let's listen better. Let's become individuals who are willing to hear before we speak kind of a James, um, you know, concept uh, to be slow to speak and swift to hear outside of its immediate behavioral application. I think secondly, there's something that we can do in the same area of really kind of working with the new believers is to realize that they have an untapped potential. Nearly every older evangelist I know 
typically confer kind of confirms the same reality that new converts are the best threads into the communities that surround local churches. Um, they have the energy, the zeal, the interest to really get out and make those connections for new opportunities to teach. So rather than dismiss, you invite and you say, hey, let's, let's partner up. Let me provide you some wisdom, some compassion, some care, where you provide the enthusiasm or opportunity. And as a team, we're better. You know, we talked about uh, how the signs and all the things having to be right. What came to mind to me is, I think with good intentions, one of those things is people feel like you need to fill a sermon with all sorts of scripture references, you know, and this sort of brings me back to Acts 17, since Paul didn't really do that at all. And I just wonder how many people, you know, if this was translated in today's world, would would look at Paul's sermon and think, well, that's that's not a gospel sermon. He didn't even use one passage. I think I know what happens. We, we have preachers who've preached for years. They have such good knowledge of Scripture, and they're using the Bible. I've seen guys do this. They're using it so fluidly as they preach and as they talk. And it's like it's just coming out as they preach. And people see that, and so they want to go find all these texts to back up what they're going to say. And then when someone preaches and they don't do it that way, you know, where are all the you know where are all the scriptures? You know, I'm, we're used to having 30, 40 scripture references. Thankfully, I think we're starting to get away from that and realizing it's actually more important to understand the text we're talking about rather than just throw a bunch of texts in there. But it is one of those things that is a matter of a little bit of judgmentalism that still exists sometimes within. Uh, what's the best way to say it within our circles, I think, where we look at a, a person sometimes who does a great job. Well, I just didn't see any scripture in that. Well, that's because they were working from one passage, you know, and they were really elaborating there rather than just randomly throwing in 30 passages. And it's just, it's, I love this text because what Paul does, he's not trying to convert them to the law of Moses. He is trying to take truths and he's using what they know and starting where they know to introduce these ideas to them that they already believe. And it's pretty remarkable. I mean, like their own, the Stoics didn't believe in idolatry. They spoke against it. They didn't believe in making images and yet that he's using this, you know, he knows Philip references earlier, but he knows their writings. He knows Zeno and he knows Eratus. He knows these people and he knows they don't believe it. And he actually, where he does criticize the Stoics is for the fact that they don't believe it, but they still do it. You know, your own people say you shouldn't do this, but yet you still go to the temples and offer sacrifices. And that's really what he's getting at here in this text. So he's preaching to them, even though he's not saying, you know, turn to Deuteronomy 9. I mean, he's not doing that, but he's pulling out these truths that are so powerful and pertinent. Uh, And so it just kind of reminds me of our setting. Sometimes we get this mold in our mind. Like you said, the church sign has to say the right thing and a sermon has to be a certain way and all these kinds of things. And a text like this, I think, really opens up the idea that, hey, maybe a guy could use a video in a sermon to illustrate a point, you know? Maybe Maybe we could do some things different ways sometimes to bring out truths and it's, it's good. That's a good way to do it, even though it's not typical or, or whatever. Um, but those are the kind of things sometimes that people really get upset about um, or the new things that they get concerned about. I mean, what used to be PowerPoint years ago, now, you know, we don't want that up there. And of course, now it's completely accepted. But yeah, I, I think 
that's where the newness sometimes can be helpful rather than a concern. I think in some of these things, again, we're trying to figure out like, what are we really setting as our expectations? Um, You know, with our context of the original reintroduction of the Olympic games, um, they had goals that were independent of this individual athlete's success. Um, you know, but the presumptive expectation was, as as uh, Hal points out, that this is a Greek sport, so they should do well at it, just as you would expect an American team to do well at American sports. Um, that was the presumptive perspective. Our challenge then, much like it was in our first kind of bit of the conversation, is to realize that our presumptions might always be wrong instead of sometimes being wrong especially when it involves the variety of possibilities out of a single human being. Because I firmly believe that we underestimate the effectiveness of everybody around us. Um, I think we can do a lot better at being far more effective in seeing the potential within both ourselves and others to be more, more useful in the kingdom, especially if we realize we're in a kingdom uh, and not in a church as opposed to the church. I think we can limit ourselves some ways in that regard. Those kind of perspectives too are, they're so anti-gospel. I mean, the idea they're so Freudian. I mean, the the idea that people can't change and we're really taking kind of worldly philosophies and sometimes adapting them into religious environments. Like this person's who they are and they're never going to change. I mean, that's not the gospel. Um, and realizing the potential and the ability that someone who maybe they've had a terrible life, but they then can open doors that um, none of us could have opened around them. And I'm, I'm seeing that right now where I'm at. Um, we have that exact situation happening uh, with some things happening in our congregation. It, it just being able to see that potential and see what somebody is able to do, uh, which clearly is part of what's going on here with Paul. I mean, I think Paul has some righteous indignation. I think that's part of it. He sees how idolatrous they are, how they're not worshiping God. And certainly that's a part of it. But Paul always saw potential too. And he's he's looking for how he can influence Athens with the good news. And that's his ultimate goal with what he's trying to accomplish here. And I think all of us at this point, at some point, have talked about this idea of losing sight of what our actual goal is. And that is the big danger in this idea of you know multi-generational faith and all that. Like, why are we coming to church regularly? Why are we reading our Bible? Like, what is the purpose of all of this? It's not just to develop good habits. You know, it's not just to have a good friend base. I mean, those things are great and we want that, but there's more to it than that. And so there has to be this level of self-discovery. And sometimes those new people really help us see that more clearly yeah. if we're humble enough to let them. It might be appropriate briefly, at least, you know, we're, we're ragging on the old guard here pretty hard. Uh, there's room for technique as well as skill. Uh, you can have both. In fact, you really ought to have both. There is a way that you can take the technique that has developed over decades, if not centuries, and use that to hone the skill and motivation and drive that you have in the new generation and realize that the other group has something that I'm lacking. And maybe I have something that they're lacking. 
And if we combine our talents, we combine our skills, maybe both sides of this can, uh, can get better. Let's, uh, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, if, if we've done something a certain way for 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, maybe there's a reason we've been doing that. You know, if, if we've been singing the same Isaac Watts hymn for 300 years, maybe it's a really good hymn. Maybe that's why we're doing this. And, and like for, in hymns in particular, that's why they, they have longevity. It's because they're good. You know, 99% of new hymns probably aren't good. They're good for the process of the individual who wrote them, which is why I write. I write for me. Secondarily, I write for the church at Eastside. Um, tertiary to that is everybody else. And so hymns and all work kind of in that way, but not everything's great. Some of it is mediocre um, in the spaces outside of step one, step two, and maybe step three. Um, and I think there's some some important you know principles there, like you're pointing out, that like, hey, just to change because it's because you want to change. Well, you got yourself to ask the question, why? That works in congregational context. It works for preaching and teaching too. The methodology of the three-point sermon, which reappears in the five-paragraph essay, exists for lots of reasons. Not all of them are relevant to the effectiveness of your goal. Um, tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them. Tell them what you told them. Like that's that's standard writing methodology from my youth. Doesn't mean it's going to do what you want it to do. Uh, and a narrative approach might work. Um, other didactic uh, methodologies might come into play. Uh, even the simple reading of a text in the communal context can have a different, powerful outcome. You know, I, I think we see a lot of skill in what Paul does in this text, it's just pretty remarkable. And it really touches on a lot of things we've, we've been talking about, even your you know latest um, comment, Hal, about not throwing everything out because that's exactly what Paul does. He, you know, he's accused of new teachings and strange things. And part of what he does here is actually, he turns the tables on them. He identifies himself with actually old philosophy and he takes what's good from it. And he says, hey, actually, what I'm teaching here is not new. This is this is all old, you know, so we don't throw out the good stuff that's old. You know, we, we keep it. And that's part of what he's trying to get them to see here. Right. So he's quoting their poets and he these guys are, you know, centuries old at this point, the poets he's quoting and they're everyone's very familiar with them. And he's basically saying, hey, what I'm teaching is really what these guys are saying. Right. And you believe these guys. And now he's going to then twist it with some theodicy at the end that there's going to be this day of judgment and there's, you know, all this, but that's part of, he's actually turning the tables and saying, Hey, the Epicureans, I mean, they're the ones who are teaching new strange stuff because they don't believe this. They don't believe in the resurrection and they don't believe in God really. I mean, they don't have this concept of God's providence. It's really popular and it's very easy sometimes for preachers now to talk all bad about what preachers used to say and what preachers used to do. And, We've got to be really careful how we do that. Um, there's a process to everything. And, you know, years ago, they didn't have located preachers. Guys went around. They, they preached different places. That's where they were. That's what their world was at that point. And then they started having local preachers. And then eldership started to grow more fully. And there's a lot of work that went in to get us to where we are right now by people of the past. And I think that's worth honoring and it's really interesting. This would probably surprise a lot of people. Um, but I mean, Luke, 
he is aligning Paul with Socrates to this entire text. I mean, he's really honoring Socrates in the way he goes about telling the story. And Socrates is a pagan, but and he's he's using it for his own purposes. But you know, that'd probably surprise a lot of our people that Paul that Paul's doing this, or you know, Luke is doing it in his writing, but Paul is kind of this character that's a lot like Socrates. Even in Athens, speaking in the marketplace, same accusations, all of this, um, and that's kind of used as this foil, you know, to to tell the story of Paul. Um, so we can honor the things that are older and use the things that are useful and helpful without just throwing it all out and acting like none of it matters. That, that that's not the right way to go. And our culture's doing that thoroughly, right? Because we want this new identity. So get rid of all the history of the past because it doesn't matter. That's all foolishness to just throw all that out and not consider it anymore. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Please rate, review, and share so others can access this content. I encourage you also to join the Heaven Citizens Facebook group. There you will find links to related materials, conversation starters, poll questions, and the occasional special announcement. Also, check out the Hal Hammonds channel on YouTube for even more content. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, Citizen of Heaven, signing off.